Good morning. Good to be back. If you take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Before I read the passage, let me ask you this question. Are, are you a successful person? Are you a success? And in asking that question, um, I'm not asking, were you successful in the past or do you expect to be successful in the future? But right now, if you were to judge your life at this moment, I mean, naturally, the answer that you give to that question will hinge on the more fundamental question of how do you define success? And very on and early on in life, we are having success defined for us in uh, overt ways and in, in subtle ways. For instance, I think growing up, most of us played Milton Bradley's game, the game of life, didn't we? With the cool spinning wheel in the more middle of the board game, you spin it and you move your car along the spaces. And the object of the game of life is, is to collect money. Whoever has the most money at the end of the game wins. Along the way, there are some key decisions you have to make. Early on, you have to decide whether or not you go to college. If you go to college, then you have better career options available and better salary. Uh, But it costs you $40,000 worth of debt. And at the end of college, you you draw a random card, and you hope that that card is either doctor or lawyer, because if if it is, then your chances are of success. That's the best. As you travel through life, you arbitrarily fill up your car with pink plastic pieces, baby girls, and light blue plastic pieces for boys. There are paydays and vacations, taxes and fines, and at the end, you, uh, you get one of two options. You either retire as, as a millionaire to millionaire acres, or you go, where do you go? You go to the poor farm. Only in today's version of the game, it's not called the poor farm. It's called countryside estates. (laughs) But in the game of life, whoever has the most at the end wins. How many of us play that game as kids? Just, you know, quick sign of... Did it ever seem strange to you as a kid that the, the point of the game was whoever collects the most money at the end wins? Did that ever seem strange to you? Probably not. Probably not because that's, frankly, indicative of the world that we observed as kids. Well, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to tell the story of a man who, by all accounts, is a very successful person and has won the game of life. Everybody would look at this man and say, he made it. He's the envy of us all. Except God's judgment on this man is strikingly different. God considers him to be a dismal failure and a warning for us. Beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But but Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, 
The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for you for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jumping ahead to verse 33, he summarizes this whole section where he says, To his disciples, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Ordinarily, the older son, in uh, as far as inheritances were concerned, would get two-thirds of the family estate. And if there was only one other brother, he would receive one-third of the family estate because the older brother was, was due the double portion. Or there were sometimes the cases of, say, a small family farm when there was uh, not enough to divide among the different brothers. They would end up agreeing to all live on the farm together and share the asset We have here uh, an instance in Jesus' life in his teaching ministry where somebody walks up to him and asks him to arbitrate a family inheritance squabble. And I don't think that this episode was all that out of the ordinary. Jewish rabbis were regularly asked to, to basically settle civil disputes. So, you know, some commentators, they take the man to task for making this request of Jesus. I think this was a perfectly reasonable ta- request that the rabbis regularly uh, um, affirmed. Now, Jesus declines it. Jesus says, I ref- I'm not going to be a referee between the two of you because he knows his mission in life was not to serve as an arbitrator. And he knows that his days are short because in this section of the Gospel of Luke, he, is, he set his face towards the city of Jerusalem. He's walking toward the cross and, and all of his focus is in in that direction. But look at verse 15, if you will. This is the first part that surprises us. He says, Beware! Be on your guard! There are only two other places in Luke's gospel where Jesus uses this uh, this language. Beware! Beware! One of the times is, he says, Beware of... um, Beware of the Pharisees. Or beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which was, he defines as hypocrisy. Because the idea being that you could easily fall into the trap of doing religious service and activities in order to have other people admire you, but your heart be a long distance from God. So watch out for that trap that you can fall into. The other time, he says it is beware of false prophets. Because false prophets can easily trick you into believing their lies. But interestingly, in the Gospel of Luke, and I don't think anywhere else in the Gospels, Jesus never says, beware of murder, beware of adultery, 
watch out for lying or theft. And I think the reason is simple, because nobody all of a sudden real, wakes up and says, wow, I, I, I didn't realize this isn't my car. <laughs> nobody, nobody says, wow, I didn't realize you're, you're not my spouse. Because of the sins of murder, adultery, theft, and lying are relatively obvious sins. You, you don't fall into those unawares. But I'll tell you, in my 14 years of pastoring, I have never had a person come to me and, and confess that their sin was greed. I've never had anybody walk into my office and say, I need some advice uh, uh, about how do I control my greedy heart. Because nobody, it, they say greed is the sin that nobody commits. Because <laughs> nobody is aware of it. Try this exercise. Answer for me this question. Who are the most materialistic people you know? Go ahead and very quickly make a list of the people who are most materialistic, most enamored with having the newest version, uh, the latest phone, the the latest electronics. um, A list of the people who are the biggest shopaholics the most brand conscious, the people who would never be caught wearing clothes from Walmart. Make a mental list of the most materialistic people that you know. And what you will discover, your name is not on your own list. Because none of us see ourselves in those terms. And curiously, if I were to go and interview the people who are on your list and ask them to give me their list, I guarantee you their name wouldn't be on their own list. Because the nature of greed is to blind us to his presence. That's why Jesus starts out this whole section by saying, watch out. You're probably guilty of this. Well, he tells this wonderful parable. It's called the parable of the rich fool. And most of us don't read Greek, but if you were reading it in the Greek, you would find... Of the 54 Greek words in the parable, 18 of those words are either I, me, myself, or the man talking to himself. 18 of the 54 words are basically focused on himself and his own individual achievement. And if you notice, maybe I'm being a little too hard on the guy, but he's a farmer and he's experienced a bumper crop. He's, I mean, he's, he's never had a harvest that was this good. And yet notice, he, he never gives thanks to God in the parable. I mean, as a farmer, of all people, he should know that the harvest belongs to the Lord. And if there was a bumper crop, it's because God has sent just the right amount of rain and just the right amount of sun. And he's kept the pestilence and the locusts away. The Lord gives the harvest. The Lord giveth and taketh away. But this man, he does not acknowledge the Lord. He's focused entirely on on himself, and his response is, I have nowhere to store my crops. In the fourth century, Ambrose, St. Ambrose of Milan, speaking of this comment, uh, the rich farmer's remark, he said, you have nowhere to store your crops. Oh, yes, you did. There are plenty of storehouses for you to put your crops into. There was plenty of barn space available to you in the stomachs of the needy, in the houses of the widows, in the mouths of children, there was plenty of barn space. But you interpreted 
your plenty as an opportunity to simply, you know, more, more, bigger, bigger, better, better, give me better, give me more barns. That's kind of the ethos of this. I want more, 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 bigger, bigger, better. I have nowhere to store my crops. The other curious feature about this passage, and I could be wrong about this, but I, I think I'm right, that this is the only place in the Bible that speaks about the topic of retirement. Because <laughs> when he builds his bigger barns, what does the man say? He says, in effect, I'm going to retire and live the good life. I'm Eat, drink, and play shuffleboard all day. Eat, drink, and wear flip-flops all day. and Drive a golf cart everywhere that I go. Live in a place where the sun always shines. This, of all the spots in the Bible, is Jesus Christ waging a frontal assault against the, the American dream, really, which is you, you work to retire. Retire to live a life of self-indulgence. And the, that mindset, at least... Uh, it seems so clearly here, is wrong. This idea that I'm supposed to retire to a life of self-indulgence, that's, it finds no favor with God. Now, brothers and sisters, here's, here's what I would say. If by God's grace, you do end up making enough money in life so that one day in the future, you're able to not have to drive into the, work, into the workplace every day and punch a time card and... Um, you know, that's not a sin. But it is a sin to make that your life's goal. It is a sin to, to, to think that the reason I'm around is so that I could retire at the age of 47 and be the envy of us all and buy a sailboat and cruise the Mediterranean and sip little fruity drinks with umbrellas out of the top of them and, and spend my you know, nights on the French Riviera and and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Actually, what happens is, is you retire, and before you are able to even get in the sailboat, there is a searing pain in your chest, and they can't get you to the hospital, and you're dead at 47. And then what do we call you? We call you a fool. Verse 20. God actually writes this man's epitaph. This man's epitaph, his gravestone, is inscribed by the hand of God. He says that you, sir, are two words, a fool. You may have heard this term before. It's the term a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is the term philosophers give to a profound change of uh, seeing your world. I mean, a paradigm shift often takes place after maybe a, a, a big experience in your life, it's usually sudden, but due to whatever it was, the way you think about the world and view everything else, does a dramatic reversal. What Jesus Christ is trying in this passage to, to enact is a paradigm shift. What type of paradigm shift is he advocating? He's advocating the paradigm shift from seeing your personal wealth in terms of more, bigger, better barns to... It's the paradigm shift to becoming, becoming rich toward God. That's the point of the passage. I want you to begin to see life in terms of becoming rich toward God. And he describes the result of this paradigm shift in verse 33. I purposely included this section 
or this passage right at the end of the section. He says, this is, this is how, you, how you become rich towards God. At least one of the ways you become rich toward God. You sell your possessions and give to charity and give to the poor. And in doing so, you make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. And you actually, you find unfailing tre- treasure in heaven, he says, where no thief comes near. Nor, nor moth destroys, for, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You become rich toward God in selling your possessions and giving generously to the poor. Let me give you a story, a historical story that illustrates this. We already sung his famous, most famous uh, hymn. The hymn attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, All Creatures of Our God and King. St. Francis was born in a town in central Italy in the year 1181 AD. He was born into the home of a successful businessman, a merchant trader who imported and sold expensive fabrics. At the age of 14, St. Francis was apprenticed to his, his father's family business. And according to his biographer, he was really quite good at it because he had an extremely charming personality. He was also quite good at drinking. He ended up squandering much of the family's, the family company's profits in the pubs with his friends. He gained the reputation of being a, a bit of a dandy. He wore the most stylish clothes. He sung the the, the popular rebellious music of the 12th century, which were French love sonnets. <laughs> Rock out, man! St. <laughs> Francis was what we would describe a moderate prodigal. But at the age of 22, he was serving in the Assisi militia, and he was part of a military assault on the nearby city-state of Perugia. Uh, the, the assault... Um, was a disastrous failure. Many of his fellow soldiers died. Um, He was imprisoned for a year. He spent the better part of a year in a Perusian prison, which he attributed to the sins of his youth. He believed that God was judging him for, for all of his dissolute behavior. After a year, he was released, and he fell into a deep depression. The they said that he was constantly plagued by nightmares. We would say he, he experienced the moderate, uh, modern equivalent of PTSD, but he just re- withdrew entirely from society. He went and he lived in his, uh, in his own room. He wouldn't come out and talk with anyone until the day came when he decided uh, to flee his house, and he fled to a nearby church. There was an old, abandoned, derelict sanctuary that was in the village, and he decided that he would, for the rest of his life, live on the floor of this church like a homeless man, where he would try and atone for his sins by whipping himself on the back, self-flagellation, not eating, fasting constantly, sleeping on the floor, and giving to the poor. He, he He was noted for his extreme, extravagant generosity, to the poor. It was said about Francis that he would give to any beggar who asked him. As anybody on the street, he would give whatever was in his pockets. And if he had nothing in his pockets, he would literally take the shirt off his own back and exchange his clothes with the beggars. 
He would give whatever money he had away, either to the church or to the poor, and it got so bad that his father actually wrote him out of the family will for fear that if the father were to die, the family estate would be squandered immediately. Everybody in the town of Assisi thought he was insane. His parents went to the church and drug him back to the house where they locked him in his own room until the father went away on a business trip and the mother, out of her, uh, her motherly tenderness, let him out. And as soon as he was released from his room, he ran back to the church. Well, the, the story, at least the, the part of the, the early part of Assisi's life, um, or Francis's life, reaches a climax. He is walking down the road one day when he comes to a group of lepers. Francis was extravagantly generous to, to all poor people, except he absolutely loathed lepers. He felt a complete sense of revulsion in their presence. Lepers in that day, I mean, it could refer to lots of different skin diseases, but they were, they were an ostracized caste. A leper was not allowed to live in or even enter into the city itself. A leper was required, if they were walking along the road, to carry a clapper with them to alert passers-by that they were a, le- a leper so that they could, could avoid them. Well, there's one day when St. Francis is heading down the road and, and he says his heart was changed. There wasn't a light from the sky or a voice from Jesus bellowing. That he just writes later in his memoirs this. When I was in sin, it seemed too bitter for me to see lepers. But the Lord himself led me among them and I showed mercy to them. And when I left them, what had seemed bitter to me was turned into sweetness. And it's that point that he realizes he is called to serve the poorest of the poor. And he spends the next several years of his life living among the lepers and caring for them. Even though he was extravagantly rich, uh, he was extravagantly generous towards the poor, he would say that it was not until the moment that he went and actually touched the hand of a leper and, and put into the hand of a leper the coins in his pocket and taking the leper's hand, pressed it to his lips and kissed the hand of a leper. He said, that is when I became rich towards God. Everything else before that moment was, was religious hypocrisy. It was only when I went and lived with the, the lepers that I finally became rich. There are three observations I'd like to make about the passage before, before I conclude. Number one, thanks be to God that he doesn't shame us because we are wealthy. Did you notice that in the passage? Jesus does not come along and scold us because we have an, an awful lot. I don't think the spirit of the passage is that he's wagging a finger at us. You fat cats, you Americans, don't you realize that the rest of the world lives on $2 a day? How dare you buy that suburban? How dare you spend money on no clothes? I don't think that you wealthy, conceited people, the point of the passage 
is not the negative, how dare you? The point of the passage is you need to experience a paradigm shift and become rich towards God. Um, there's nothing wrong with making a lot of money. King Solomon, King David, plenty of other men in the Bible and women in the Bible had a lot. There's nothing wrong with making $23 million if you are able, but it, it all comes down to what do you do with it? Number two, the second observation that I, I'd like to bring to your attention is uh, being rich toward God is a command that is, that is difficult for us to, to get our minds around because it doesn't come with percentages attached to it. It'd be a whole lot easier if Jesus Christ said, yeah, be rich toward God, and that means 10% of your tithe goes to your local church, 5% of your income should go to local mercy ministries, and and 3% should go to missions. Or I mean, you could just, it would be so nice if Jesus came along and gave us this line item that we can put into our budget and say, all right, I penciled that in, woo. But, But he doesn't. You have to wrestle with the Holy Spirit to, to figure out what it means. And then thirdly, in order to teach your children this principle, in order to teach your kids this, you have to learn it first yourself. In order to teach your children what it means to be rich toward God, you, you cannot play the game of life, the American game of life, and expect them to get this. If you are playing the game the way everybody else is playing it, then of course your kids are never going to to experience what, what it's like to store up for themselves treasure in heaven. You have to learn it yourself. I mean, we're very fortunate. We live in a city where there are many opportunities for us to give to the poor and serve the poor in our community. I mean, easy opportunities. For instance, the Genesis Medical Clinic, which is in Garden City, provides free medical services. It was started by Carl Watts, who, I mean, the Watts are going to be joining our church in a, in a few weeks here. They need all kinds of helpers, from anything from clerical support to mowing the grass in front of the clinic to nursing and, and so forth. There's so many opportunities to volunteer. Love in the name of Christ. There's, they do such good work to, to help the poor. Um, you know, eight of us went off to the, uh, on the Sacred Road missions trip, and we, we returned yesterday afternoon utterly exhausted. So if I have bags under my eyes or you feel like he has no, no energy in the sermon this morning, that, that's why. We spent the last week on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation, which is located in northern Oregon. And I was very fortunate to take three of my children with me, Cora and Allie and Kaya. Warm Springs has, it's a conglomeration of three tribes, the Wasco tribe, the Paiute, and the Warm Springs tribe. There are some six to 7,000 registered tribal members located um, on a picturesque, piece of land. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. During the first half of the, each day, Monday through Friday, we went to um, a house. It was actually a large community center. 
similar to the size of our sanctuary, not quite this large, and we painted the exterior of this house. One team went to paint what was called the long house, and the other uh, team went to paint one of the elders' houses. Both of the houses were, as you probably would guess, dilapidated. Uh, Both of them should have been repainted five to ten years ago. And then in the second half of the day, we would run kids' club for 90 or so children ages 5 through 12. And whenever you come home from a short-term missions trip, you have lots of stories to tell, um, and I'll give you one of them. The reservation is a place of such hopelessness and apathy. The longhouse that we were painting, you walk into the entrance of it, and in the entrance, there are two things. There is a soda machine that looks like it dates back to 1969, and there is a water fountain that is running. And when I first saw it, I, I worried that one of us, one of the team members had gone inside and had accidentally lodged the water fountain button in there, and so I jostled with it for a few minutes to try to stop the water from flowing, and try as I might, I couldn't get it to stop. So I went to the team leader, Darren. I said, Darren, just so you know, I'm afraid that we messed up the water fountain. It's still running. He said, oh yeah, that thing's been going now. It's been running for about six months. Nobody will fix it. Nobody fixes anything on the res. Everything is, is, is broken. And there aren't any men there to fix it. Wild dogs roam across the reservation, so the parking lot that we uh, that's surrounding the longhouse, there's just dog feces everywhere. Nobody's cleaned up the dog poop for a decade. <laughs> the moment that I'll remember the most was this one. So Jim Winkle and I are working on the east side of the building, and it's about 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock. We are baking in the sun. We have steel scrapers in our hands, and we are scraping the paint on the exterior of this building. And we did that for about a day and a half, just nothing but um, over a, a, a wall that was as much as, I don't know, 35 feet tall. And we're just, we're sweating bullets. And when you look around and none of the people on the reservation are there to help us. I mean, we were lucky to even get them to bring paint. We're scraping and our arms are starting to... <laughs> fall off of us. And it was at that moment where I heard Jim say, I'm not sure he said this, but I think this is what he said. He said, so this is what the Messiah did for us for 15 or 20 years. I mean, he became a carpenter. And the word carpenter isn't simply somebody who makes little cabinets. It was somebody who who built stuff. He was a builder. And for 15 or 20 years, he, he came into a world of decay, which was infinitely more like a reservation to him than that reservation was to us. He became a carpenter, which meant he scraped wood for a living. And he came to an apathetic and hopeless people. And this is what the Messiah did for us. He who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, became, become, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human flesh, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Are you, ex- are you a successful person? I saw a man hoarding his treasures, building bigger barns, stuffing his safety deposit boxes with wealth and worrying over the stock market in his portfolio. But then disaster struck and he lost everything because the man had everything to lose. I saw a man throwing around his money with abandon, emptying his barns and turning his portfolio over to charities and missions agencies. And then disaster struck and he lost nothing because he had nothing to lose. And he gained everything because he was no fool. 